This is a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Trail podcast. Today we have a slightly different podcast. It's podcast on tour, as it were, uh, recorded in the Lake District in England, where I interview Ronnie Foe, who was sort of the original outdoor extreme sports adventure journalist. So he was the mold which eventually turned into my career. If you are confused at any point as to why my normal co-host Mary Huey sounds like a old British man, that's because I am no longer uh, joined by her on this particular podcast. She'll, well, of course, be back in the future, but she's been replaced by uh, my dad, Crispin. Um, why my dad has decided to come on and talk to me, or why I invited him, mainly because he agreed to drive me to the Lake District, but also partly because. Ronnie got his break into adventure sports journalism on the 1976 Everest expedition um, and my dad just happened to be on that expedition so they got to know each other quite well. The expedition was deemed a success because uh, they got two people to the summit, two SAS officers, Brummy and Bronco. Unfortunately they got stuck on the way back down in bad weather and uh, had to make a snow cave for the night. They became among the first people to survive a night above 8,000 meters. And in the morning, the rest of the crew had to go up and find them. And along with my dad, uh, they uh, they had to get them down. And uh, one of them was still in a good enough state to walk himself down, even though they both gone blind. Uh, and the other had to uh, be stretchered down on the stretcher they had built out of ropes and took them three days. Of course, I always knew that my dad was an adventurer, but I didn't take a particular interest in it uh, when I was young, which is always the case with young men aboard of their fathers. But I did first come across these stories in a book called Soldiers on Everest, which was written by Ronnie Foe and also uh, John Fleming, who was on the expedition and is now my sister's godfather. But uh, it was a really cool experience uh, to get to talk to Ronnie and find out about his incredible life um, and also join the... uh, have that experience shared with my my dad although the uh the stories obviously are of ronnie maybe later we'll do a podcast on on my dad himself but of course the podcast is not about my dad it is about ronnie foe so you're going to hear some incredibly interesting things first and foremost just sort of why the times were interested in sending journalists to everest but also how it then went on to lead to so many more opportunities uh ronnie then became the adventure journalist of his time uh, and he got to meet the likes of randolph messner who is a famous explorer. He got to write books about sailing in the west coast of Scotland. And it's incredible to compare his experiences as a journalist where trying to get news back, breaking news, people on Everest was so different to me. Just last week when I'm, or a few weeks ago when we were covering the, the, uh, the, the ant queues going up to the top of Everest and the subsequent deaths, I messaged one of the uh, one of the famous guides on the mountain, Adrian Ballinger, just as he was coming down from the mountain, he replied to me saying, "Do you mind if I give you a call on the back? I'm just getting that down to base camp, still on Everest, which is such a ridiculous contrast to uh, to Ronnie Foe, who would have had no contact of uh, of any sort of immediate nature back in the 70s. So it's really interesting comparison to times gone by, and a man who's had a really incredible life. So. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. My first question is that 
I'm an outdoor adventure sports journalist now, but it's very obvious to, for me, for my job to exist because so many people are doing it. Why was the Times interested in even having a journalist at, uh, at Everest? Well, I got a, an invite from the army to join them in 76. Uh, I've been doing quite a lot of climbing, never seriously achieving a great deal, but just enjoying the mountains. Um, came from a, an outward bound course where the the, 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 uh, the new leader of the school was an Everest um, veteran. He was a wonderful, wonderful chap. He, he was due to be the leader of the 53 Everest expedition, or everybody thought he was going to be. Um, but he, he liked being in the mountains. He liked just to be being among them rather than uh, triumphing over them, to, climbing to the top of them. Uh, mountain exploration and that appealed to him more and that's what I went for uh, but eventually I went through regional papers I got onto the Times at that point was invited by the army to go to Everest which I did uh, following in the footsteps of course Jan Morris a very famous uh, Times reporter and journalist uh, it was a success we climbed to the top and uh, I got into the, the Western Coombe, a bit onto the Lutze face. This is as far as high as I wanted to go. I'd never had any ambition to go any higher at all. Never have had, but just to be among mountains, while we live in the Lake District now, was, was enough. So then when you write your story that Britain's got another person at the top of Everest, is that like front page news in the 70s? Why were the Times so desperate to uh, pay somebody to be there for a few months? Uh, a very good point. Uh, really, it was the strength of the invitation rather than having the Times send me there. Uh, they were very keen. This history of a Times journalist going to Everest dates back, as I say, to Jan Morris. Uh, and that was really the, the, the principle, the main reason I went. So um, what was like day-to-day -day life as a journalist? Everybody else has got the mission of actually getting to the top of Everest in, in, in mind for the whole time they're there. But uh, for you, what were you doing sort of day on, day out? Oh, talking to people um, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of chat. Why why are you doing it and what do you think about it? And, uh, and then describing going up the icefall. I went up the icefall about three or four times. Uh, it's a dangerous place. Um, tremendous atmosphere. The whole atmosphere of the mountain was, was quite wonderful. I enjoyed it. I wouldn't enjoy it now. Not with, what, 7,000 people have reached the top? Climbing over dead bodies? It sounds awful. It's like an ant queue waiting to go the loads of face. It was very different in those days. Yeah, did you see the pictures last week of the queues for the summit? Appalling. Boy, I wouldn't to go anywhere near it but um, it's a great shame lots of other mountains with nobody on them what was your sort of like atmosphere your relationship with the team everybody is were you, did you feel like a bit like an outsider or were you sort of embraced as um, as a member of the team despite not necessarily being one of the uh, mountaineers per se well all i can say is that many many years later um still great friends with lots of members of the team lots of them we get in touch we talk and we chat and exchange letters and uh, there's a tremendous um, bonhomie amount the whole thing they're a very grand lot of people although I mean I was national service in the Royal Navy I had no association with the army at all um, 
But no, they're great people. Uh, there are quite a lot of tensions within the, the team itself that had a, a difficult uh, introduction to it via uh, their, their training expedition where people were killed, um, lots of problems over the leadership. But it all worked out, from my point of view, it worked out splendidly. Yeah, well, my dad was saying that you were sort of, um, you ended up being the team psychologist everybody would come to chew off your ear about the different tensions. What was that like, trying to be impartial as people spoke to you about the tensions? <laughs> well, I, I was hardly ever aware of them, actually. Apart from the fact you knew, you can assume that, that there was difficulty, but in my relationship with the individual members, it never showed at all. And... Um, if there was a problem, I just kind of talk my way around it, edge around it, change the subject. <laughs> and, and Dad, was it? Had you ever been on an expedition before where you had like an embedded journalist? Uh, no, it was the first time that we'd, we'd had a, a journalist, and Ronnie Foe uh, joined us and was a great asset to the team because I always felt he was somebody neutral who you could go to talk to uh, about things that were going on, and uh, it was like water off a duck's back. Ronnie would listen. You'd had your say, and I'm sure other people did the same. But I think, Ronnie, you were saying that you knew Tony Strether, who was the leader, uh, even before you'd come on the expedition and had had, had a contact with him already. Um, years ago, um, I, got a, a, I met a, a, a mountaineer called John Emery, who was on the Haramosh expedition in, oof, must have been 20, 20 odd years ago. Um, and he got very badly frostbitten. I think two members of the expedition were killed. Um, Tony Strether was very lucky to survive, but he was the leader. Um, and years later, I discovered that uh, he was actually leading the Everest trip. John had spoken about him very, very fondly and admiringly. And so um, I went along as a Times journalist out of the blue to write a report about their preparation for Everest. Uh, and that's how I met them. Um, I was writing about Scottish politics and North Sea oil, and um, that was my main subject, based on Edinburgh. <laughs> but but uh, after I wrote the piece about the Times going to Everest, I went climbing with them in the Lake District. Um, it was about a fortnight after that, uh, the phone rang and they asked me to go with them. I put it to the Times and they said, yes, okay. Um, so off I went. Did that sort of then basically change your life after that you were an adventure journalist? Well, I'd always been a, a bit of an adventure journalist, so writing about the outdoors, writing about mountains, um, people climbing them. Um, that hadn't been my main subject at all. As I say, it's Scottish politics and... North Sea Oil was my main. Uh, <clears throat> that's where my pen led me most of the time. Ronnie was a journalist in a particularly interesting time. Uh, you know, we talk about all the technological disruptions we're going through at the moment, but uh, he was working for the Times just at the same time as Rupert Murdoch took over, which coincided with the whopping strikes in the UK. So if you hear him mention that, that's when uh, the printing press changed and cost lots and lots of people their jobs but ultimately became more efficient, as is the trouble with all technological leaps forward. So just bear that in mind as he skimmed it over. The Times correspondent in Scotland, weren't you, when 
the Everest expedition invited you to join? I was um, uh, based just outside Edinburgh, uh, and that's what I went back to after the expedition. Um, and for a while, um, at times, went into all kinds of uh, industrial problems with the whopping thing, and then a change of ownership with um, uh, Rupert Murdoch, and eventually uh, got a new editor, Harry Evans, who was a bristling, eager, uh, kind of very keen to change things. And he said, um, I want to... After a new look at the times, I want to have it soar away times and um, want some new ideas. Now, I'd been on the paper at 20 years that time and was uh, thought, well, I'm, I'm dead wood, I can't, <laughs> I've got to think of something. So I put up an idea that there should be somebody concentrating on what people enjoy doing, how they pass their time, not in the sports pages, not with. Uh, performing in arenas upon, upon crowds and sort of sports that have rule books and bats and uh, rackets and balls. Um, I was never good at them at school anyway, so it was no loss to me that I, I could concentrate on things that I enjoyed, the hills and climbing. And so I put an idea to have somebody writing about these this area of leisure, what people do, enjoy doing, non-competitively. Uh, I've got 14 subjects uh, involving land, mountains, sea, sailing, and the air, flying things. I put it to them, and they said, yes, go ahead and do it. And for two years, I did nothing else but, but um, learn how to fly, like gliders, microlight aeroplanes, big aeroplanes, sail all over the world, uh, the Pacific, uh, Caribbean, uh, New Zealand, um, really was extraordinary. And then on the land, uh, lots of, I uh, did four, three or four more expeditions to the Himalayas, parts, different parts of the Himalayas. So there I was, um, fully fledged as an outdoor man. How how did each expedition compare to each other? Were did they each have a very different feel, or were they all did they all have common denominators? I suppose the common denominator: the people who do them, the people who actually enjoy doing that sort of thing, tend to be the same sort of person, really. Uh, I get on very well with them. Uh, I enjoy their company. Um, uh, it's just a great way of spending time and then doing so many different things. Ronnie was a journalist in a particularly interesting time. Uh, you know, we talk about all the technological disruptions we're going through at the moment, but uh, he was working for the Times just at the same time as Rupert Murdoch took over, which coincided with the whopping strikes in the UK. So if you hear him mention that, that's when uh, the printing press changed and cost lots and lots of people their jobs, but ultimately became more efficient, as is the trouble with all technological leaps forward. So just bear that in mind as he skims over it. So, I mean, you were also the correspondent when Randolph Messner and Peter Hadler were the first people to climb Everest without any oxygen. Um, I mean, that was very small expedition, just the two of them going up compared to sort of the mass siege of the 1976 army expedition. What was the, how, how did that differ between each other in terms of how they felt and how covering it was? 
Well, they, they linked on to the Austrian expedition, <coughs> which is going to do it conventionally. They're just two two lads who um, are going to do it a different way. Um, I got invited because Leo Dickinson, the filmmaker, said, I've got a stack of cash um, and they want me to do a film about a mountain that had been climbed 25 years ago. Um, they want to do it by uh, two men who had never been heard of outside mountaineering and they want to do it by a route that everybody said was impossible and that was Messer and Habler. So I went out there with them and lo and behold they did it. Not only that but uh, Messer went back onto the Chinese side of the mountain and climbed it without any oxygen by himself which was a complete breakthrough. Um, and of course it made big stories and big spreads in the paper so everybody was happy. So uh, what kind of a person is Randolph Messner? Very hard man, very hard. Um, he's a difficult man to, to really like. He's so, almost by definition, um, ruthless and determined and absolutely committed to whatever he's doing. Um, Havler's an entirely different sort of person, but they seem to get on okay, well, until they fell out over the book, of course. Um, is it is it difficult to cover and get quotes and uh, genuinely insightful stories into somebody like Randolph Messner, who's just so focused he doesn't have any time for anything but the peak? In actual fact, he was, he was very helpful um, when asking questions, and he, he would. You know, trouble is, I don't speak German, and so his English is very prescribed, and there's little nuance. He couldn't really put um, a fine edge to what he was trying to say. He did it in German, and I didn't understand him. <laughs> so, so we had difficulties there. Um, but he had a very difficult life. He'd, uh, uh, he'd done some wonderful climbs, but he'd fallen out with people right, left, and centre. In fact, he had um, he had an affair with the wife of a German count who was actually on one of the expedition. Uh, it made life very difficult. It treated women in a, in a way that women do not like to be treated. I think. And you ended up writing his biography after staying with him for three months in northern Italy. What was that like? Well, it wasn't three months, it was more like three weeks. and uh, it, it, was, it was difficult. I, I got to know him more and got to like him less, I suppose, really. Um, he... He's a very difficult man. I don't think the book was very good. Um, didn't do him justice. Didn't do me justice, really. But it was translated into German uh, and uh, Japanese, I think. It got reasonable reviews, certainly in the Times, because <laughs> I made sure of that. <laughs> so now, like, journalism has changed so much, and also like, outdoor and extreme sports has exploded. What is it... Um, what what kind of contrast do you see sort of now that you're uh, not so involved in it, but for a while it was such a central part of your life? Well, I retired 20 years ago, and now it horrifies me. Um, because it's so much on the internet, and the, the Times is the internet edition, <laughs> and you, you write a story, uh, and then there's an enormous string of comments immediately afterwards. This story is a load of rubbish, and oh, I disagree, or oh, he's wrong on these points. Oh, that would drive me insane, really. 
Yeah, you got to... I spent my first year reading the comments section and it <laughs> probably took years off my life. And I, I, I make a real point of completely and utterly avoiding it, <laughs> the abuse that I get. Uh, um, yeah, I'm not a very popular man there, but uh, <laughs> is, there, is there one expedition that sort of had a particularly profound effect on you? Oh, crikey. Um, I think that, that some... Some of the things I've done uh, in flying have been quite extraordinary. Um, like what? Well, flying with the Red Arrows, I went uh, with the Red Arrows uh, two or three times. And then I flew in um, uh, one of the fast jets and had to go on a medical examination, have severe, quite severe tests uh, to fly in one of these uh, fast jets. And um, I remember once the, I joined the, Group of embryo pilots at the medical uh, the medical lecture, and then the doctor was saying <coughs> about the use of the Martin Baker ejector seat. He said uh, um, there are three ways of escaping uh, from the, this particular airplane. There's, there's a strap under the seat. You pull that. If that doesn't work, you've got a strap over your head and pull that down. If that doesn't work, uh, uh, do not try to. Uh, clear the canopy by the lever at the side. Uh, the tail is so big on this aircraft that uh, it is much better to die cleanly in the ensuing crash. <laughs> so, uh, um, no, hopefully, it, happily, it didn't happen. It was all okay. So, Dad, I mean, you say that eventually, eventually, it was great having a journalist there as sort of an, an impartial ear. But were you apprehensive of it all when you thought? well, we're going to have somebody there recording everything we do and trying to get... Uh, maybe he's going to try and get an angle and uh, sensationalise anything. Yes, indeed. Um, in the army, one was uh, always suspicious of, of journalists because they were always trying to get you to comment on operational matters and so on. So there was a deep suspicion. And so when Ronnie, we were told that a journalist was coming on the expedition, I think it was uh, not very well received by everybody. But the moment we were at Ronnie, uh, it was different because he was such a personable person, uh, open and got on with everybody, uh, that it was in fact a pleasure to ha have Ronnie on the expedition. And as he said, many of us have remained good friends long time after. And certainly it was very nice being based in Scotland uh, with Ronnie there as well. We saw quite a lot of each other uh, at that time. Did anybody sort of discuss it that, um, beforehand? Like, are we, should we take a journalist or who should we take? Uh, no, I think it was really uh, done at the top level. The army was really promoted all these expeditions for the publicity that it brought to the army. And indeed, it was in 1966 when no soldier was killed anywhere on active service uh, that the Minister of Defence said, what are we going to do with everybody? And they invented adventurous training, uh, which was taking soldiers on the hills and so on and they wanted to encourage expeditions and they wanted the publicity from it because that was good for recruiting and so on. So there wasn't any discussion with the team members, we were just told the times was coming. Yeah. And how, I mean, when you went, how did the experience compare to what you were expecting when you were first invited? Pretty much as I thought it would work out, but I was very delighted with the way that everybody responded. Um, they were very, very helpful, and 
didn't have to do anything. Uh, they're very, very understanding. They realised that I wasn't. I was quite knocking on in years at that stage, a good deal older than most of the others. Um, but they were very kind to an old chap going along with them. Um, uh, it's quite. I find it quite hard, physically hard. Um, but but it's um, yes, just basically enjoyable. I ended up writing the co-writing the book Soldiers on Everest with John Fleming. That's right. Yes, we had we did the book. We did a chapter at a time. I did a chapter, and then John, and and then there's another section of the book. Everybody who'd done anything wrote wrote something like cooking and the catering, the uh, equipment and the wireless. And it, it was an interesting book. Was that the first book you'd written? Uh, ee, hmm, there's a point. Mm, yes, it was actually. Yes. How did it compare writing a book to writing an article? Well, it was easy. It was just a series of articles because they were just chapters of the book. <laughs> it was good. Um, writing a book is is a different ball game altogether. Obviously, um, the, the amount of research you have to do and the, uh, making sure it's all correct is is is, is tricky. Um, even even in journalism, uh, stories are immediate. They're bang by there. You know, you, you have to write them and get the facts and do it very, very quickly under a lot of pressure. A book is, is different. It goes on for a lot more words. A story is about 500 words. A book is at least 15,000, 30,000 words. Ronnie didn't just cover mountaineering. He uh, got into a whole host of adventure sports and the Times let him write about everything that basically wasn't organised sport. And in particular, that led him to a life of sailing up and down the west coast of Scotland. If you haven't been to the west coast of Scotland, add it to your bucket list. There are white beaches that if you took a photo of, you'd say, wow, that must be in the Caribbean somewhere but you'll be confused by the why the people in the foreground are wearing four layers of fleeces and uh, and a wetsuit in the water. But it's truly beautiful. Like The sunsets across these little islands, it's all called the Outer Hebrides, and this chain of islands up the west coast of Scotland. We've got orcas, dolphins, seals, basking sharks. Oh, it's making me homesick just thinking about it. So if you haven't been, add it to your bucket list. And if you're going, you should probably pull off the shelves Ronnie's book, The West, A Sailing Companion to the West Coast of Scotland. So, I think you then went on to write, uh, write a book about sailing on the West Coast. Uh, yes, that's right. When I was um, in, in Scotland, I bought a small boat and um, went off around the Western Isles every summer. I tow it behind, it was a Bill Skeel boat, I towed it behind the office, the office marina, right across from the west, east of Scotland to the west, launched it near Oban and uh, set off and look at the Inner Hebrides and then going to the Outer Isles as well. It's the most wonderful part of the world to sail. I've been, I was happily, very happy to visit lots of other parts of the world and sail uh, there, but um, there's nothing to beat Scotland. It's got the culture, it's got the scenery, it's got the change of light, uh, shape of the hills, and the atmosphere is just completely different from anywhere else in the world. 
Um, and so I tried to include all this in, in, in a book, which went to about 60 anchorages from uh, south to north on the Hebrides. Um, wonderful time writing it. So you're saying sort of the, the, the contrast with the stories have got to be immediate. When you actually, when in 1976, for example, you're on Everest, did you have to get a story back to the Times immediately, like breaking news, British Army get people to the top of Everest, or do you wait until you get back to Kathmandu? Um, because when Jan Morris was there in 1952, you know, he had to get the pressure of getting it back to Britain before any other newspaper found out so they could publish it on the same day as the Queen's coronation. Of course, there was a couple of people before Ronnie who were writing about similar things, or they maybe didn't turn it into their career in the same way that Ronnie did. And one of those which uh, Ronnie mentions is Jan Morris. Um, if you're confused by the name reference, he was the journalist for The Times who covered the first summit of Everest in 1953 uh, with Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay. What was amazing about Jan, which is possibly different to um, to Ronnie, was he was under real pressure to break this news, A, before other newspapers, and B, in time for the Queen's coronation. And they rushed the story back, and it was almost poetic in that it was eventually, the next day, published um, on the same page as the Queen's coronation. So they nailed it. But again, 20, 30 years later, the contrast in technology and uh, the, the time pressures is incredible to hear from Ronnie and about how he got his story back. He was writing a number of features throughout, but when he eventually heard that the army had placed Ben on the top of Everest in 1976, he got it back in a rather rudimentary way, which is quite amusing to hear about and a huge contrast to today where I would be expected to write that story within three minutes and send it via WhatsApp. So I loved hearing about this part and about where... Uh, my predecessors in adventure journalism and how they operated. Were you under that sort of pressure, or was it is it more featurey rather than breaking news? Uh, definitely featurey. Um, I had a chat with a fork stick. Uh, I wrote my pieces and handed it to the chap, put it on his fork stick, and off he trotted to Kathmandu, where it was radioed. I think the army organised some sort of connection, radio connection, and it was all done that way. Um, subsequently with the Messner trip and with other trips it's been um, much more difficult because you've got the immediacy of actually having to to do the work right bang there um, and and then it's it's sent by radio it's all done sort of within uh, within minutes really it's back in London but on the Everest trip on the first one the army trip it was uh, very relaxed because uh, the man with his fork stick waiting for my pen to stop scratching and then I handed it to him and then off it went. But it was some time before it actually reached London. And what was sort of the uh, the interest in the article? Was it front page news or did or given it was 20 years after it first been climbed, how many people sort of were interested? Uh, not front page, but still quite a bit of interest, I think. Um, and it got some, we got some good features out of it, you know, sort of on the, on the op-ed page. Um, no, it's, I was happy with, they were happy with the coverage it seemed to be, and uh, I was happy to do it. And it, um, and it, did it make it easier in a way that um, it ended up being so eventful um, that Brummy and Bronco became the second and third person to spend a night over in the, the death zone, I think, and then were rescued and taken, what, it took two, three days to get Brummy down? 
Yes, something along those lines. We first got him down to the South Col, then we had to get him down to the Western Coombe, and then a helicopter came in and flew them out from the Western Coombe. Yeah, and you sort of made a stretcher out of ropes and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, we sort of have, um, Bronco made his own way down, but Brummy was in quite a bad state and really had to be lowered down the uh, with, uh, down the Lhotse face back to base camp, and then we put him on an army stretcher, which we had, and sedged him down to, to the base camp. So it, did that make your life easier in terms of finding a story because it was so eventful in the end rather than just a simple success? Oh, yes, yes, it made it uh, much more to write about. Um, yeah, uh, it was good in that it had the sense of a proper expedition. I don't think these days you can get that same kind of atmosphere with, what, 7,000 people have been to the top now? Uh, the queue at the Lutzi face like ants. Uh, it's beyond my comprehension that anyone would want to go up and do it, and especially stepping over the dead bodies to get to the summit. People can't be moved. They just freeze and stay there. Awful, awful. We've come to the end of our time, but thank you very much, Ronnie, for uh, taking the time to, to, to meet and chat to me. That was a really great podcast for me. I loved hearing from Ronnie Foe and I love hearing from all the people who were sort of part of my dad's life when he was going through those expeditions. Um, nonetheless, my dad himself. Um, I remember reading the book Soldiers on Everest, which Ronnie wrote and learning about my dad. He wrote a sentence along the line that everybody got quite frustrated every morning because they would want to get up and go, but my dad would insist on having his alpen warm so the whole of the rest of the expedition would have to wait while he cooked it which uh, sounds like a polite way of everybody was telling my dad rather rudely to hurry the, something up. Um, but in the future, I won't be joined by my dad. I'm uh, looking forward to having Mary back where we talk more about trail running as, uh, as it goes on in Europe and then ramps up over the season in Hong Kong. And I hope you enjoyed this at home. Remember to subscribe to the Adventure Trail. Follow us on Outdoor and Extreme SEMP. Follow Mary at Mary Huey on Twitter. Myself, I'm at Adventure Agnew. And uh, make sure that you uh, enjoy running those hundreds of miles across the new territories, across the world, wherever you are. Make sure you're whiling away those miles while listening to the Adventure Trail.